Well, it is, um, first let me introduce myself. If, if I haven't met you yet, we always have new people on Tuesday mornings. I want you to know that so you can always invite a friend on a Tuesday morning, even if they've never been here before. My name is Chad Scruggs, one of the pastors here at Park City's Presbyterian Church. I get to co-teach this Bible study with Paul Goble. There's Paul in the back. Um, but this morning we have uh, the privilege of hearing from a guest speaker. Now I'm going to introduce you guys. Um, Dr. Dan Doriani is here with us this morning from St. Louis. Dr. Doriani was one of my professors in seminary, one of Mark's professors in seminary, and so we blame a lot on him. If any, there's any sort of frustrating things about us, then we got it from him, honestly, caught it from him. Um, uh, Dr. Doriani has three daughters. Um, he, uh, he is written all kinds of books, many of which I, or some of which I brought here, Getting the Message. I don't know if any of you have ever heard uh, uh, of this book. This is my favorite that he's written. Putting the Truth to Work. So Getting the Message is about how to read the Bible. Putting the Truth to Work is about the theory and practice of application. He's written several commentaries. I tell you that just because um, uh, Dr. Doriani, if you ask many of my peers um, who stands out to them about some of our most formative years in St. Louis, his name would recur um, as often as any other name. I had Dr. Doriani for um, a class on the Gospels. I had him for a class on the General Epistles. Um, I had him for a class on marriage and family. If there was anything he was teaching and it was an elective, I was going to sign up for it. Um, I appreciated the fact that every time that he opened his mouth to speak, no pressure, by the way, I, I really felt like I learned something new. Um, Dr. Doriani has a remarkable gift of being able to take complex things and making them simple. And that is enlivened by his wit and humor that I think will come across this morning probably, and it's reinforced by the character of his life. Dr. Doriani is not just a seminary professor, he is also a pastor, and perhaps first a pastor in terms of vocation before a professor. So I am thrilled. You know, Covenant Seminary, um, a, a representative of Covenant called and said, you know, we would love to, to offer one of our professors to come and speak at, um, at one of your events. And Mark and I both looked at each other and thought, well, if we could have Dr. Doriani, that would be great. And so we have him this morning. So I'm so glad that you guys get, um, get a taste of what I got to, to drink of more fully for years in St. Louis. Um, Dr. Doriani, come on up, and he's going to teach us now from Psalm 13. This was actually, I told someone else this morning, this was the psalm that I preached on in my ordination sermon. It's a psalm of lament, so I'll let your imagination go where it will. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me pray for us this morning, and then I'll let you uh, let Dr. Doriani go. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for gathering us once again to hear from you, to hear about you from your word. We pray, O oh Lord, with all that's going on, that Jesus would, would come across uh, strongly. Um, Father, we pray that you would prick our hearts, our imaginations, to know and to love you more fully. And we pray, Father, as, as, uh, as we engage in a, this psalm of lament, God, that you would teach us how to mourn with hope, um, that you would make us men that know how to engage with tears in the brokenness of our own lives and the brokenness of the world, and also in confidence that you intend to make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Chad, that was a mighty nice person you were talking about. And I hope to meet him someday. 
but it is nice to be here and to meet all of you and uh, to read and to speak from Psalm 13. So if if I may, I'm just going to read Psalm 13 to you, and then we're going to talk about lamentation for about uh, 20 minutes, and then we'll talk about this psalm in particular. It's very short and easy to understand. So this is God's word, and let's read it together. It begins with a series of questions, not statements. The first question is this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's part one. Here's part two. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here's part three. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want to set this uh, theme of lamentation up uh, through two fictional characters. Um, The first is Don Draper, who left TV about two years ago by now. Uh, If you know the story, there's a long-running series called Mad Men, won a lot of awards. In that series, Don Draper is the hero, or the anti-hero, depending on how you read the story. He's talented, creative, brilliant, caustic, a womanizer, alcoholic, breaks his marriage apart through uh, various misdeeds. His mother was a prostitute who died in childbirth, and he spent many years running, hiding from his old life. Now he's a successful business executive, and he's still running and hiding. He has a protege, and that protege's name is Peggy. Peggy is just as talented as he is, except she's a woman, and he decides more or less to take her under his wing. And through a series of events, Peggy has a breakdown and uh, traumas, and she has a breakdown. She lands in the hospital, and it's a mental hospital, and Don Draper visits her, and he says the following words, Peggy. Do you know why you're here? Peggy answers in a drug-induced haze, I don't know. Don says, yes, you do know. And you need to do whatever they say to get out of here. Get out of here. Move forward. This never happened. You will be amazed to find out how much this never happened. Just get out of here. She does get out of there. And her career launches and so forth. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the series because his advice is born of his wisdom. And his wisdom about his life and his past is, it never happened. Just get out, move on, don't think about it. It never happened. Now, that's the wisdom of America from 1930 to maybe 1965 or so. And it still remains the wisdom of many people in America to this day, although it's certainly not universal wisdom. The past, what is painful, simply didn't happen. Or pretend it didn't happen and move on and get on with your life. Now the series Mad Men suggests that as long as Don Draper thinks that way about his past, it never really happened, you have to deal with it, he will always be immature, womanizing, self-destructive, alcohol-laden, and all the rest. Now, that's one view of how you look at trauma, 
how you look at things that are lamentable. Psalm 13 is a psalm of lament. One way our culture addresses problems that could be lamented is to pretend it never happened. And I'm just going to say, knowing that this is a group of men, probably at some point, the great majority of you have decided to look at a trauma and say, it never happened. I'm just going to move on. And there's another approach in our culture, which is probably more common today, but I'm going to illustrate it through a novel that was written about 90 years ago. And it became a very minor movie, and if you like obscure minor movies, I'll tell you what it is. It's Cold Comfort Farm. Does anybody here see Cold Comfort Farm by any chance? One person. Exactly. That's exact. Two people. It's exactly normal. About one out of 100 sees Cold Comfort Farm. Um, in Cold Comfort Farm, there is a, um, there's a woman named Ada Doom, Aunt Ada Doom. And Ada Doom has had some kind of a trauma in her early life as a child, maybe five, six, seven years old. And because of that, she holds up in a room and barks orders at people, refuses to work under any circumstances, has no obligation to be civil or polite to anybody. And, and the excuse is this. I saw something nasty in the woodshed. I saw something nasty in the woodshed. Obviously, she's an 88-year-old woman, and so that's what she sounds like. And that's what she says, no matter what she does, because she has this unspecified trauma at the age of six. She's now 88, and she has allowed it to dominate her whole life and leave her off the hook. And that's, of course, what some people do in our culture today, too. Uh, so if Don Draper says it never happened, Ada Doom says, this trauma defines me for the rest of my life. I'm going to stay in this, this act of betrayal, this, this violence that I suffered, this impoverishment that I suffered, this mistreatment that I suffered, and it's, it's, it's perpetually an open, oozing wound. Those are our choices in our culture, the extreme choices. We can either say it never happened or we can endlessly stab ourselves with self-recrimination and regret. The Bible says there is a better way. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. What a funny statement. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn means blessed are those who, who weep. Blessed are those who know how to weep. Blessed are those who know how to weep because, Jesus says, they will be comforted. If you can't weep, you will not be comforted. If you don't experience your grief and your sorrow, if you don't know what it is, and, of course, Jesus means, Psalm 13 means, Psalm 22 means, weep in the presence of God for his input, for his word, for his healing. If you can't weep in the presence of God, you will not be comforted. Now, Jesus did not have Don Draper and Aunt Ada Doom to contend with in his day as bad models, but there was another model. The model was the Stoics. Well, try this one. Who's heard of the Stoics? Come on. You've heard of the Stoics. The Stoics said the way you face adversity is kind of Don Draperish. The way you face adversity is by saying, this won't hurt me. The way to avoid a life of pain is to refuse to feel pain. Expect pain. Don't be troubled by it. Just for fun, that's also the path of Buddhism. It's also the path of Hinduism. 
Christianity is almost unique in saying when you experience trauma, pain, betrayal, and woe, what you need to do is feel it and feel it and lament it in God's presence. Tell him about it and see what his input might be. We grieve, the theme would be this, the Bible teaches us to grieve in the presence of God when there is trauma in our life. There is, Solomon says, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That applies to lost jobs, broken marriages, um, betrayals, and all the rest. Now, we have um, a lot of psalms. You know how many psalms there are in the Bible? Who knows the answer? 150, good. 60 of them have been categorized as psalms of lament. Now, if you read through the whole Psalms, you would, you would say, ah, oh, maybe not 60. There are 60 that have a, a substantial amount of lament. About half of them are, are almost exclusively lament, and about half are Psalms that have a significant portion of lament in them. So there's lots of lament, and the Psalms of lament come in two forms. There are the Psalms of lament that are corporate, which say, we are laid low, we have suffered, O Lord, help us. And they might be used for corporate worship, like in your church services. And then there are the individual psalms of lament. I am laid low. I am grieving. I am suffering. Lord, help me. Those are individual psalms of lament. And they would be used for individuals in worship. No surprise there. The psalms then give us a pattern. They tell you and me what to do when something lamentable has happened. And, and basically what happens is this. You spread the truth before God. You say, Lord, this is what happened in my life. And, and then they go different ways, somewhat different ways. Some say, um, you are able to deliver me, please do so. And others say, you are, able to do, you are able to deliver me, why aren't you? And some even say, God, you are able to act. What is wrong with you that you aren't acting? Or various levels of... of um, Anxiety, if I can say it that way. And David, who wrote six of these, also did it in real life. I don't know how well you know your Bibles, but in uh, 1 Samuel, when David was on the run from Saul, you know that part of his life? Saul wanted to kill him. Um, at one point, he fled into Philistine territory, and there was a war, and he was recruited for one side of the war. And when he got back to his home, marauders had come, burned the village, and carried everybody off. He didn't know where his wife and children, the men did not know where their wives and children were, and it says this in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength to weep. Now, I don't think anybody would accuse David of being unmanly, right? So David wept aloud until he had no more strength to weep, which I commend to you as an option, a biblical and valid option, when something terrible happens to you. Um, I'm going to speak personally about this a tiny bit. So I, I grew up in a, in a uh, violent home. My father was a violent man. And I'm one of the guys that said, I am not going to feel this. As a pastor, like these guys, I was a pastor for like 16 years. I would sit in my office and listen to people telling about the terrible things that happened to them, the terrible things their parents did to them. And I would think, man, this... This, this woman has really been mistreated. 
or this man has really been mistreated. And I would actually say to myself, I'm so glad I've had such an easy life. Now, what, the, what I meant was, I have a wonderful wife, three wonderful children, and I've had friends, and I have two good brothers, and so forth. And I would, find, I would hear myself saying, isn't it great that I've had such an easy life? And then I would, I'm supposed to be listening to this person. And I am, but I'm off now, because I'm not trained at these things, so I lose my focus. Um, and I'd say to myself, wait a second, no, what, what this woman's father did to her is like one-third as bad as what my dad did to me. What am I? I've had a terrible life at home. And, and it was because I, I so thoroughly pushed it away. It never happened. Really, it didn't happen. Until I was 53, I said, it just didn't happen. Those years didn't exist. And I was afraid that it, once I started crying, I told a friend of mine, if I, if I start crying about this, I'm going to cry for six weeks. I'm going to lose my job because you can't stop crying. You just have to stop crying, Dan. David wept and he had no more, no more strength to weep. And it's not wicked. It's not foolish to lament in that way. Now, we have other people in the Bible who lament. Uh, Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet because he wept over the sins of Israel. In fact, he not only wept over the sins of Israel, he wept over the way people didn't listen to him. And the way his friends would say to him, you got to stop talking like this, bro. The bro is my translation. <laughs> you got to stop talking like this. You are depressing us and you are weakening our hands as the Babylonians are coming to invade. You got to stop. And it was so intense, they would do things like throw him in a pit and so forth, that he said, not only am I grieving over Israel's sin, I'm grieving over the lack of repentance. He said, cursed be the day that I was born. That's Jeremiah 20, 14, if you want to look it up. Now, our thought is, prophets aren't supposed to talk like that. Prophets are not supposed to say, I wish I had never come out of my mother's womb, which is another line he uses in a different place. Uh, so the counter to that is uh, our normal patterns. So if, for those of you who like to take notes, here's what we do. One, two, three, four, five, maybe even. Number one, here's what we do. When a hard thing happens, we distract ourselves. We tell ourselves about the new jazz song, musician, wonderful, Stranger Things is on now, Super Bowl's coming, Texas Tech, how good is Texas Tech? How good is TCU this year? Let's talk about that second string linebacker. Should be playing more. What's wrong with the coach? We distract ourselves, that's one. Number two, we get angry. We blame our enemies. We castigate the fools. Number three, we deaden our souls. It never happened. Never happened. I'm not going to feel it. Refuse to feel it. Real men don't feel pain. Number four, we fix it. We become engineers. Let's fix it. What's the problem? What's the solution? One, two, three, four. Number five, sometimes we pity ourselves. That's eight of doom. We, we paralyze ourselves. Instead, we should lament. We should lament. Now, I'm going to tell you that Christians often don't lament. There's a song that some of you may have sung. It's called, Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. Know that song? You guys sing that song around here? Please tell me the answer is no. <laughs> this is a very strange psalm. I have the lyrics here somewhere. Every day with Jesus is sweet. There it is. I have the lyrics right here. It goes like this, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Then he says it a few more times. Those are the lyrics. 
The man who wrote this is named Robert Loveless. I think it's a great name. <laughs> it is kind of loveless to tell people, as for me and my triumphalistic prosperity gospelers, we never experience anything bad. When I get cancer, I'm just so happy I can't stand it. And when my dog dies, it's just so sweet to know that my dog went to doggy heaven. Don't tell me dogs don't have a soul. When I break my tibia, my fibula, my radius, my ulna, it's just so great to know that God is going to heal my bones. Every day is sweeter. I don't know what world he lives in. He doesn't live in my world. More importantly, he doesn't live in the world of the Bible. The Bible says that we should lament. Take it to God. Tell God about the disorder. Yes, there's a place to praise in lament. Almost every psalm of lament, all but one psalm of lament, has an aspect of praise to God. But the main idea is God governs the world, and he sees and knows the evil we're in. Yes, yes, it's true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But while we're in those moments where it looks like we're being separated from the love of God, we lament What's a lament? I didn't tell you yet. Uh, a lament is a prayer with tears. A lament is a prayer with a sigh, with a groan. You may remember um, King Hezekiah, who was king when Sennacherib invaded Israel. And um, the leader of the armies taunted God, said, look, the other gods have not delivered their nations. And so he's not going to deliver you. So don't tell yourselves, the commander says, God will deliver you. And he wrote it all up. The commander wrote it up, and, and Hezekiah took it into the temple and laid it on the altar and said to the Lord, would you look at this? Do you see what he's saying about you? Oh, and by the way, his armies are surrounding the city. And he lamented, he grieved, he wailed, he took it to God, he mourned in the temple and said, this is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. He took it to God. It says, Hezekiah went up to the temple and spread it out before the Lord and pleaded with God and said, open your eyes, open your ears, hear these insults and act. That's lament. Saying, Lord, I see it, you see it. It's painful. Do something. I, can I just encourage you straight up for a minute? If you've got a brokenness in your marriage a brokenness with one of your children, with one of your friends, at your work, you're not being treated right, Somebody's, somebody won't talk to you anymore, this is what you do. You don't say, I won't feel this. You don't say, I've got four kids and one of them is, is killing me, I'm gonna focus on the other three and pretend the fourth child doesn't exist. That is not what you do. You take the pain of that fourth child and you say, Lord, you see it. You know it. Please act. Please act. You can. Please do. Well, let's take a look at Psalm uh, 13. Psalm 13. What does Psalm 13 say? Psalm 13 is a short, classic psalm of lament. That's why Chad preached on it. Makes a good one. Six verses, hard to go too long, right? 
Speaking of going too long, I just saw the clock. When am I supposed to be done? No, no, tell me roughly. Quarter till. Okay, but I'm supposed to leave some time for discussion, right? Okay, you got that. All right. So uh, Psalm 13 is a short classic psalm, and it, and it has these elements to it. Part one, which I told you, is the barrage of questions that he asks God. It begins with a desperate cry. How long? How long? Five cries, five questions, five lines. One and two. Part two, there's a series of, of petitions in four lines. And part three is a conclusion in joy and calm, which is the way it usually works in Psalms of Lament. Not always, but commonly there is celebration at the end of God's deliverance. So it goes like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle, this is a slightly different translation, must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The question is, how long? So what he's saying essentially is this, Lord, I know you have forgotten me. That's just I'm not even going to argue that. I know you've forgotten me. I just want to know how long you will forget me. Because it's quite clear from my experience, he says, that you don't know where I am. You don't care about me. You, don't, you, don't, you do not care. Your eyes are elsewhere. But I do hope that your eyes come back to me. Now, let me say it this way. One reason why men, has, and women, but men, I'm speaking to men, uh, hesitate to lament is because we're afraid of our emotions. We're afraid that if we tell God how angry we are or how upset we are, that maybe he'll reject us or rebuke us or chide us for feeling the way we feel. Have you felt, have you had that thought in your head? So please, please let it register that this is a psalm David wrote for use in worship. This is how David is worshiping God by telling him how upset he is. So, again, if you have suffered betrayal by mother, father, child, wife, best friend, the boss who hired you, and it's... it's it makes you so angry at times, you can hardly stand it. You are allowed to say to God, look, the only way I got in this situation is by you forgetting me. I know you forgot me. I just want to know how long. When will it end? That sounds like a very impious thing to say. It sounds like bad theology. How can God forget? God knows everything, right? How can a, how can a believer tell God that he's forgotten? Because we know God doesn't forget. But what God's saying is this, you are um, emotional beings, I know that, you are not a bunch of theologians. I mean, I hope you were lay theologians, but you're not a bunch of theologians that have to keep theological principles in mind. If you're in agony, take it to me. The, the, what's faithful about this is he doesn't say to his neighbor, how long will God forget me? He says to God, how long will you forget me? You see the difference? Suppose you've had a brother or a sister who has failed you and betrayed you. Let's suppose you're from a family of three, and one of your siblings has betrayed you. If you only tell your other sibling, my brother 
Um, I'm gonna pick an, uh, Arnaldo. My brother Arnaldo has been so cruel to me and you only tell your sister Beatrice about it, then there can be no healing in the relationship. But if you say to Arnaldo, why did you do this to me? Then there's hope, right? Because you're taking it to him. So the believer takes the grief to God and says, how long have you forgotten me? How long will you turn your face from me? You're turning your face, you're looking the other way. Seems like you've abandoned and rejected me. How long? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, he asks next. The thoughts here are, um, could be translated plans or purposes or advice, which means he doesn't know what to do next. I'm thinking about this option, this option, this option. I'm taking them to you, Lord. Which one shall I follow? By the way, this is one of those talks in which you're allowed to daydream while I, while I talk, as long as you're daydreaming about things, horrible things that happened to you or things you could lament. <laughs> if you're daydreaming about breakfast, that's not correct. <laughs> it's right over there. The donuts are unbelievably awesome, and you should not think about that. He has another problem, he has an enemy. Who here has had an enemy? Some point in your life, yeah. His, somehow this is also allowing his enemy to triumph over him. Someone is glad that David has faltered. Even as sometimes we think, when we're in the pit, that not only am I in the pit, but some people are glad that I'm in the pit. And he takes that to God as well. Okay, that's part one. Then part two is the plea and the petition. So here's, let me say it this way. Uh, I'm from St. Louis, mostly, also other places. Um, but, you know, St. Louis and Dallas are both reasonably sunny cities, right? Yeah? A lot of sunshine in Dallas, right? Then there are other cities that aren't as sunny. What do we think of? We think of Seattle, Right? I used to live in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has only 1% more day sunshine in a year than Seattle. Did you know that? You know it now. It always felt kind of dark to me. Now I know the stats. Some people like to live in Seattle. They want to live there. They like the haze. They like the fact that the sun comes out at noon. You know, cloudy days. That's not bad, but, you know, in, in this analogy, um, some people like places with no sunshine. Some people like to live in Mount Doom, you know, Tolkien. Shouldn't like that. You can visit. You don't want to stay there. You want to move to Dallas eventually. You want to get some sunshine. You want to move to St. Louis. You're, you're allowed to be brooding and gloomy when it's appropriate but you don't want to live there. You don't want to stay there. So you start with your morning, and then, and then you begin to plead. And it goes like this. Look on me and answer me, O Lord, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Now, he just said, you've forgotten me. But the petition is, look at me again. See me in my distress. Again, I encourage you to do this. Lord, I feel abandoned. But I know that you see all things, and so I'm, I'm asking you to look at me. And then he says, restore to me the sparkle in my eyes. Again, it's translated different ways, but over the, it's a very rare word, and one of the few places it appears elsewhere in the Bible is in 1 Samuel 14, 
when Saul commanded the Israelites who were fighting the Philistines to eat no food while the battle goes on. Remember that story? And, and Jonathan didn't hear it, and he didn't have any food, and he saw some honey oozing out of the ground or tree. I forget. I should have reread it for today. And he eats it, and it's, it says, and then the sparkle was restored to his eyes. That's the word. You've seen people with no spark in their eyes, right? And you've seen the spark come back. You go, you're back. Haven't seen you for three months, you're back. Way to go. Don't want to happen, but you're back. The spark is there. You're laughing. The synapses are firing. When I ask you a question, you don't need 42 seconds to think about the answer. You need one second, the way it always used to be. Right? That's what he's saying. Restore that sparkle to me. I know you can do it. Then he says, uh, God... You must act, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. So that's, that's his plea and his petition. That's part two. Part three is the resolution, verses five and six, where the tone changes. I'll read it to you again. It goes like this. Um, my enemy has to say, I've stopped saying I've overcome him. My foes will stop rejoicing. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. How does that happen? How does he go from how long will you forget me in verse 1 to I will sing, my heart rejoices in your salvation? Anybody here ever worked on something and then put it down and come back six months later? Done it? Yeah. So it could be. One thought is that the space between verses 1 and 6 is, is three months or six months. The, the raw emotions, like, you, I don't know, probably there aren't a lot of poets in this room, but a lot of people try to write poetry. You write a poem, and it has like one or two good lines, and then you think, man, this thing is just horrible. And you put it down, you got two good lines. Something happens, you come back to it six months later. Yes? And then it works. So he's in his grief, and he comes back. That's one answer. There's actually three ways people think, I think, that he could move from this, how long, I'm in despair, you've turned your face away from me, to I rejoice in the Lord's salvation. One of them is time passed. And you're in woe, and you're in despair, and time passes, and things change. That's one. The second thing that might have happened is, by simply telling God, this might have all been written in one day, by simply telling God all about it and unburdening himself and saying, Lord, I give, as another psalm says, I give my burden to you, that that alone changed his feeling, his heart, his ethos, so he could say, I praise you. It's possible. Could be it. Uh, sometimes when we pray, we ask God to change the circumstances, but sometimes the circumstances don't change, but God changes us, right? So that could be it. That's number two. Number three is that maybe he went into the temple or to a synagogue and saw a priest or a prophet, and he said, this is my problem, and the priest or the prophet said something, some biblical truth, some counsel, that allowed him to change in his spirit. We have, for example, um, in the book of Samuel, I'm using Samuel a lot because David is in Samuel, and David wrote this. But before David appears, we have Hannah who has no children, and she's grieving in the presence of the tabernacle, and the priest comes by and says, 
uh, hey, you're mumbling. I think maybe you're drunk. She goes, I am not drunk. I am, I am drunk in my tears. I'm drowning in tears. Why? Because I can't have a child. And the priest says, you know what? I'm convinced God is going to give you a child. And he talks from there. Now, the child isn't there, but the priest's word. So those are three ways we move from grief, lament, and sorrow out. Number one, time changes. Number two, you change. Number three, somebody else comes in and says, things are going to change. God is present. That's the case of, of Hannah. The point then is this, my friends. I call you friends. I don't know you, but you're giving me great eye contact. So I'm declaring that you're my friends. <laughs> the point is, every topic is appropriate for discourse with God. Every topic. Uh, so I'm of a certain age, some of you are a certain age. I still try to do competitive sports. I still do competitive. I shouldn't say I try to. I still do it. And I get a lot of injuries. And every injury, I think, this could be the last one. This could be the end. That's lamentable. Now, does God care about how my Achilles is doing or how my whatever it is, my rotator cuff? Does God care? The answer is yes, he does. And if there's a day, there will be a day when I can't compete anymore, I will lament. God cares about the day I've got to put it down and never pick it up again. It'll be a sad day for me, and God cares about that. Even as God cares, so here's a classic question. Should little children be able to pray to God about the death of their kitten? Comment. God doesn't care about kittens. That's the harsh one. Even if it's true that God doesn't care about kittens, he cares about the little girl who has the kitten. He cares about that. So a sick kitten is an appropriate topic, as are torn rotator cuffs, etc. By the way, I don't have one, but all my friends do. I have other problems. If we care about it, God cares about it. Everything is a proper topic. We don't keep it to ourselves. We don't, we don't go to inwardly turned bitterness. God cares. In all our afflictions, Isaiah 63, he is afflicted. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. What a statement. In all of your afflictions... God is afflicted. Can you imagine that? That's comforting. That means you can tell about the afflictions. And you're allowed to say, Psalm 22, which I was supposed to speak on, but I rejected. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus prays that on the cross. Just think about that. It seems like an accusation, a statement of unbelief. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have forsaken me. I just want to know why. But it's an acceptable prayer because it's taken to God. My God, my God, he still owns God. Why have you forsaken me? Then he waits for an answer. That's lamentation. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over and it's gone. His place remembers it no more, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Even in the face of death, you say, Lord, I'm going to die. The wind's going to blow over my grave. 
but your love lasts. All topics, even in the valley of the shadow of death. So my friends, I urge you to consider lamenting as a part of your life when you're in grief, when the world is against you, when you're betrayed. Take it to God. These are the steps. You address God. You say, Lord, hear my prayer. You lament. You say, how long is this going to last? Take it to God. You tell God. You plead, oh, Lord, answer me. And you wait for an answer. In trust, you say, I trust in your unfailing love, and I will yet praise you. Now, we know that that's through Christ, right? It's Reformation Day. So we know what's not quite stated here, that we get praise in adversity through Christ, gave his life for us who died, who rose. And it comes by faith alone, through grace alone, right? That's how we trust. That's what it means to trust. But present it to him in all of its pain and wait for his answer. Let's pray for a minute. Holy Father, pray for these men as they're about to go to their tables and uh, discuss these things. Lord, um, as you know, a certain kind of man, maybe most of the men here, finds it difficult to be honest about the pains of life. Far more common, far easier to pretend it never happened. And Lord, that's not your way. And we pray that you would teach us how to grieve and mourn and wail because you will turn our mourning to laughter and our gloom to joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.